Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Annapolis. Start your 2024 off right with some new clothes from Leon Tailoring. Something new, something tailor-made, something ready-made, or something custom-made. they got the finest in men's and ladies' apparels, and they also take care of you as well. They've been around for almost a near 100 years and some change, and don't stick around that long unless you're getting it right. So get on over to Leon Tailoring, tell them Abdul sent you, and they'll take care of you. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown Indianapolis. Well, as Indiana lawmakers get underway with the second part of the legislative session, of course, the political season full gear in Indiana. I can't think of a better friend to talk to than our good friend Andrew Downs, Director Emeritus of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. So, Andrew, my friend, always good to talk to you. How you been? I've been doing all right. Thank you for having me on. I, I uh, have to tell everybody beforehand, I asked you how you were doing, and you said you were not sure a black man could be as happy as you are. So uh, <laughs> good to know you're doing so well. Uh, yes, we are, my friend. Uh, so how would you rate uh, Indiana's political climate these days, uh, whether it's session <laughs> or, or, or the primary season? <laughs> A, a little more difficult to predict than some people might hope, I think, is the way I would describe it right now. Uh, but at the same time, is it really that hard to predict? I mean, we always know there's going to be something that makes it a little exciting. Uh, we have several instances of that this time. Perhaps we could talk about Victoria Sparts, and she's not running, then she is running. Or we could talk about a legislative session that's just supposed to be sort of about uh, technical sort of policy things and not talking about dollar things, but a billion dollars being on the table for the conversation. We can talk about ballot access and whether or not Indiana's laws are good for that or bad for that. We could talk about scandal or supposed scandal regarding ballot access. So many things for us to talk about. So in other words, there's nothing going on in the neighborhood is what you're saying. Nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> boring. Very boring. Well, my friend, let's go ahead. And, uh, let's go ahead and start uh, with session. Like I said, you know, lawmakers are sort of uh, in, the, in that sort of that second half, that second half, or or or, or if you use a hockey reference, sort of that second period, because then you got you know conference call, conference yeah. committees, and 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 final decisions have to be made. How would you rate uh, how things are going? What's what what issue out there has sort of caught your attention? Yeah, on the one hand, it actually is going smoothly. I mean, they're meeting regularly. They're not really having huge blowups when they're meeting and talking about things, which you would expect to happen because there is a supermajority. And when supermajorities have things to disagree about, they're able to do that in the caucus room and then sort of look much more unified when they're out in public. So in some respects, it, it is going smoothly. They, in some respects, said, let's revert to our old way of doing things. And by that, we have to go back decades where the short session is just about things we didn't get done or policy, but not about spending issues. So we could actually say this is a return to normal in some respects. Uh, the fact that they're going to try to finish about a week early, another return to normal uh, in terms of what people expect during a, during a, a short session. But at the same time, man, they have some big things that have come up. And I'll go back to the billion dollars. Anytime you're talking about a billion-dollar shortfall, uh, you're talking about real money. And how do you go, how do you go find that money? Uh, unfortunately for some folks, that's money they've come to rely on in terms of providing assistance to people who uh, – to children and young, other folks who have uh, unusual care needs. Uh, and and now you're saying, well, we're going to take the money away from who you, you we've been providing to you for a couple of years. That has a real impact. It once people become reliant on something, the moment you say we're going to take it away, it's seen as being taken away, even if it was advertised as temporary. It will still be viewed as money being taken away. And so that's going to I, I think that's going to just keep 
uh, keep part of the conversation or be part of the conversation through all three periods, quite frankly. And actually, it's interesting to bring it up. And Andy Downs, the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics, uh, our guest on the program today, uh, Indiana political uh, analysis and expert. And I think it's interesting, too, because obviously uh, it's an embarrassment for the administration, obviously. But I think it puts Suzanne Crouch in sort of, a, in sort of a, a, an interesting place because, uh, number one, she's lieutenant governor, so she was there when all this happened. But number two, uh, she's trying to say, hey, here's how I'm different. Here's how I would, here, here's how I would fix things. Yeah, it is interesting that on the one hand, she's allowed to use this as an example of what she would do differently. However, it's still viewed very much as an oversight. Any one of her opponents, whether they be the R's who want that nomination or the D's who want that nomination, uh, they can say, no, 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 no. You don't get to tell us how you will fix your mistake. You were there during the mistake own it and and you know fess up to it so it will be interesting to see where this goes from a from a a campaigning standpoint i'm pretty sure if i were seeking a republican nomination for governor i would want to talk about this and another issue too my friend that's popped up uh that uh is so the whole leap district in indiana's water resources and surveys uh that 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 whole thing which although you're up in europe in the four way there i'm in indianapolis so it's sort of smack dab in the middle of everything but it does bring up uh, the bigger issue of Indiana's sort of water supply and what's going to happen politically with that. Well, that's that's not only an issue that we need to think about in terms of important resources. Obviously, you know, in the Midwest, we think we have plenty of water. Uh, You know, we don't have shortages here like you find in some places in California and in the Southwest. We also just look north and we see those Great Lakes and we think, well, surely we would be able to get some water from there. Never mind what sort of interstate cooperative agreement we would have to have for that to happen and the federal government playing a role in that. Forget that stuff. But in the end, when you look at resources like water, you have to be looking not just five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, you really have to be looking long-term. And this is a significant issue. But part of the discussion around that, interestingly, is how much should the IEDC be disclosing to people when they're trying to strike deals? So you have this sort of more immediate issue of IEDC and how they do their business and how much you and I should get to know about it beforehand and what's reasonable for them to get to hold back because it's a you know trade secret or a deal that might fall apart. And then there's the much longer term issue of resources. And I think people are much more conscious of the resources today or the need to watch them today than they were, say, five or 10 years ago, because they're seeing changes in temperature, seeing changes in resources. Uh, I was listening to a radio show up in Canada, and they were talking about snowpack that was one-third the depth that it was in in a normal year, and that's going to have really significant effect on their water uh, resources. So I think people are getting that that's something we got to watch carefully. And it's interesting, too, the fact that we're talking about the IDC, that sort of puts, you know, uh, put two gubernatorial candidates in the spotlight, Brad Chambers (laughs) and Eric Doden. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they both like to talk about the successes, as as most of us do, because let's face it, uh, success has many parents and failure has none. Uh, but they were operating in that environment where, you know, you, you can't disclose everything because the potential business that's coming or expanding may decide to do something else. And, and, and there is a need for a certain amount of privacy. But at the same time, when you're talking about spending taxpayer dollars and not insignificant amounts of taxpayer dollars, you have to make sure the public has a chance to know about that and not after the fact. You know, you can't rationalize afterwards 
oh, well, but these were jobs that were going to pay 75 grand a year. Uh, these are jobs that are long-term jobs, you know, advanced manufacturing jobs, not old-school manufacturing. They're good for us for decades to come. That's rationalizing it after the fact. Because there may be disagreements about which advanced manufacturing jobs or which type of businesses are being brought into the state. And quite frankly, the size of the, of the economic benefits they're going to receive from the state in exchange for whatever economic benefit the state gets from them. It's a legitimate conversation to have. Our guest on the program today is Andy Downs, the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics, Director Emeritus at Purdue University, Fort Wayne. So to get in the lay of the land of Indiana's political climate, both the legislature uh, and the campaign. Um, so, Andy, let's talk about uh, the campaign race. We have an open U.S. Senate seat, an open governor seat, uh, four or five million congressional seats open. My, my running joke is anybody in the room who's not running, take a step forward. Yeah, yeah. That's Well, it's the, it's the smaller group when you go that route, obviously. You know, we had so many uh, people who said they were not running for re-election uh, this year. It, it is a very, very unique year in Indiana politics. We can find some examples of similar years of turnover, but this is not something we've seen in quite some time. And for a lot of people, they believe they are in a quote-unquote safe district. So let's, you know, take the 8th district, for example, which used to be viewed as a place where you went for the roughest, uh, nastiest fight in the state. Eighth districts viewed as pretty safe now for Republicans, uh, as are a number of other districts. And so people are thinking, wait a minute, I can get in, and as long as I don't screw up royally, I can have this job until I don't want it any longer? Yeah, let's do that. You know, that's, it's not a hard choice to, to make, but it does mean for some really exciting primary elections. Uh, let's go ahead and start uh, uh, with the with the with the sixth district because obviously uh, there's no incumbent. Greg Pence uh, retiring, stepping down. Everybody once again, his mother is running uh, for that race. We've got uh, Jefferson Shreve sitting again, the council member. Uh, you got Jeff Ratz, uh, state senator uh, over in the Richmond area. You got a uh, businessman, Jamie Garrison, uh, lots of other folks who are who are who are running in that race. Uh, what's your assessment of the sixth district? Yeah, I'm going to look at this in two ways. It, it's a safe seat for Republicans. So clearly, whoever wins this nomination is probably going to win the fall. I always give my disclaimer, every race is winnable. And so something could happen that would mean the Democrats would pull the seat to their side. But if you just sort of look at the norm, one of these, I think it's eight, but I, I'm not sure I'm using enough fingers to count the number of candidates there. One of these eight is probably going to be a member of the House of Representatives soon. It's a primary election, which means a much smaller number of people voting and a much more uh, ideologically aligned group of people coming out to vote. So, you know, you have to run to your extreme. If this were a district held by Democrats, they'd have to run to the left. In this case, folks got to run to the right. If they don't do that, they're going to be missing a very large block of voters there. Well, but friend, um, let me ask you, let me ask this. I'm, I'm push back just a little bit because you and I we disagree on, from time to time, mostly over over cocktails and cigars and and, and beer, uh, in and 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 that type of race, and not just necessarily the sixth, but also the third, and to a lesser degree the the the. Uh, 8th Congressional District, because you have so many people running, uh, and in the end, you don't, need a, you don't need a majority to win a primary, you need a plurality of votes. So in a place where you got six, eight people, 10 people running, where, where, where in the old days, you probably like, you know, maybe 51%, maybe only like 13 or 14, and maybe as folks try to sort of cannibalize that, that, that Donald Trump MAGA vote, you know, maybe, maybe this would be a case where the non-MAGA person actually has a chance at winning. 
Absolutely. And, and I, you and I aren't disagreeing here because you take those six people, uh, many of them legitimate candidates. We're not talking about one really solid candidate and six or seven people who no one's ever heard of. When you have that scenario, what you have is the ability to win suddenly with 30 percent of the vote. I don't know that you could win with as well as 15 percent of the vote. Uh, but certainly 30% is a viable option. And if you come with a known constituency, then maybe you're going to be the one who pulls it off. This is, we can talk this way about those three districts you were talking about. We could talk this way about the gubernatorial race. What are the constituencies that each of these people have? I don't see anybody in a number of these races getting to 50% plus one. It will absolutely more than likely be a plurality where you have that many people running. So I agree with you on that. And, and if you know what your constituency is, if you've been able to poll well, if you've done some good focus group work and you've done some good canvassing work, you can still manage to keep the cost of your election down because now you know exactly who to target. And whether that means winning because you're not the MAGA candidate because the MAGA vote got split among five other people or three other people, or whether you win because maybe you are the maggiest of MAGA candidates or the MAGA candidate who can pull some moderates, those are all viable options that without digging deep into data, you know, you and I can speculate, but it'd be hard for us to put together a strategy. But they are strategies that are that are easy enough to put together, a little harder to execute. Uh, speaking of uh, races with no incumbent, uh, we now do have a congressional race with an incumbent, the 5th Congressional District. Uh, once again, another one of those races where the battle looks like a CVS pharmacy uh, receipt here with so many names on it. Uh, first had Victoria Sparge saying she wasn't going to run, then she was saying she was thinking about this, thinking about getting in. Now she's, now she's back in. What, what do you, I, I'll, I'll put this in your, your hands, my friend. And that one, I don't have enough fingers to count all the candidates. That's what I do know. That is huge. And when she said she wasn't running, then, of course, people were going to jump in because it was an open seat. And like we talked about earlier, a, a relatively safe Republican seat. Uh, obviously, Victoria Sparks had to fight that first time in. But after a little moving of district boundaries and things, it's a safer seat. So, of course, people were going to jump in. No one should be surprised by that. The question for me is, how many of the voters are going to say, okay, I'm sorry, Representative Sparks, you said you were out. Now you say you're back in. I'm not sure I can trust you, so I'm going to go to another choice. I would have been with you if you had been the only candidate or one of three candidates from the beginning. But the fact that you are out and now back in, I may have developed an allegiance to someone else or simply don't have the trust I need to have with you to vote for you. I do say that you probably have to think of her as a front runner here, uh, but this could be one of those times when it is maybe that 13, 14 percent you were talking about earlier as a, a winning margin. And if the winner here has that, I think the Democrats are going to start to think, wait a minute, maybe just maybe there's a way for us to pull something off here. Uh, but that's still going to be a difficult, difficult thing for them to do. Which also brings up the inter interesting question, my friend, that if Victoria uh, Sparks is successful uh, as a primary candidate and because it gets a Republican nomination, does that give Democrats a shot? Like, hey, no, she was in, she was out, now she's back in again. How do we know three months from now she won't decide to quit? Yeah, it, it, it's certainly something that every candidate should talk about. Republican primary candidates and Democratic nominee, they all should be saying that from a campaign perspective. I'm not saying I agree with it ideologically. I'm just saying that's good campaigning. Uh, when you look at money that's come into the state from out-of-state sources, when folks have been uh, supported tremendously, Christina Hale, 
Evan Bay, Joe Donnelly. I mean, we can run down a list of people who for a long time, some of them a long time ago, got a boatload of money put into their races and they didn't win. I don't think that there will be too many people who will buy into the idea that Sparks got the nomination, but she is weak. Therefore, we should throw a boatload of money in. They're going to need some proof. And I don't know what that proof is, uh, but it's a it's a pretty, pretty solidly Republican district. And so uh, even if it's not Sparks, quite frankly, if it's somebody who gets that 15 percent or 14 percent or even 25 percent, Democrats are going to talk about it. They're going to go out and see if they can bring some money here. But I think a lot of the political investors are just going to say, we've invested in your state before, and it's not worked out for us. Give me some different information that makes me believe that will this time. Our guests on the program, Andy Downs and Mike Downs, Center for Indiana Politics, Director Marius, getting a lay of the land of Indiana's political climate. Okay, Andy, we talked about uh, the governor's race. We talked about uh, congressional races. Now let's talk about the race for the U.S. Senate. Uh, once again, you have a contested Republican primary, Jim Banks, uh, Jim Banks on the one hand, John Russ on the other side, and a lot of uh, and a lot of weird stuff in between. <laughs> uh, you know, the fact that the party came out so early and said Jim Banks is our guy is an interesting thing. It's not something that we usually see, uh, but he basically was endorsed last year as as the nominee, and he's been running as the nominee. Uh, there's been an awful lot of pressure for Russ to get out, both, you know, sort of informal pressure saying, hey, look, we're already backing somebody. You need to get out. Other pressure saying, no, let's actually challenge you officially and go to the Indiana Election Commission, see if we can get you bounced for, for some other reason. So, you know, Russ is absolutely the underdog right near right now. Jim Banks is a lot better campaigner than some people give him credit for. Uh, and so he, I'm certain, is ready for. Uh, a contested primary from a uh, a very vigorous candidate in opposition to him, and he can pivot easily to something that would be an easier race as well. He he knows how to do these sorts of things, um, and he is very much a he's an aggressive campaigner. Uh, he is more than happy to go on the attack uh, with uh, individuals. So uh, you know he's he's the front runner because of the endorsements. He's the front runner because of the attempts to get Rust off the ballot. He's the front runner in terms of funds raised, although Russ certainly has access to his own money. Uh, and, you know, he, he knows how to campaign. So I think you have to say he is probably going to be the nominee. You know, I hate doing predictions, but probably going to be the nominee. And it will be an interesting uh, rest of the year. And someday someone's going to write a paper about what has happened this spring between those two candidates. Uh, and then someone else is going to write a paper about Jim Banks and his comments about the electoral process here in the state of Indiana as well. So it'll be an interesting year and papers to read years from now. Uh, by the way, which brings us to our next thing, which so, this sort of ties in perfectly. This one, once again, why I love working and talking with you on, on the on the like you said, we, you're right. You have Jim Banks and John Russ uh, on the ballot here uh, in Indiana. And as we record this conversation, uh, just recently Monday, uh, there was Supreme Court arguments over over ballot access and yeah. sort of the, the, the two the two primary rule or, or the county chairperson's rule. I don't know if you had to see the Supreme Court's arguments, but the one thing I thought was really interesting was when Justice Russia narrowed in on not so much the the two primary uh, issue, but the county chairperson issue, because the the, the thing was, if, if what's the standard for a county chairperson to approve 
know, somebody being on the ballot. What, what's, what's, a, what's a member in good standing? What objective criteria are there? Is it just giving people money or is it saying, like, yeah, I like you or what if they don't like you? And, and that what I thought uh, gets sort of that void for vagueness, which gets into those major constitutional, constitutionally related issues. You know, the, it, what I find interesting is our primary system in so many ways is set up to truly be a function of the political parties. If you read the election code in a number of ways, it's basically saying, if you aren't one of us, don't participate in our primary. But it's also incredibly difficult to enforce many of those provisions, which means voters will find it very easy to cross over and vote in a primary that is not their own. I have spoken with people, you have spoken with people who on a regular basis vote in the primary that is not their true primary, but they vote in the primary because that's where the real decision is being made. That, of course, is shifting what the party stands for, because now it's not the party. It's the party plus a bunch of people from the other party. Uh, and then when you when you take it a step further, if you think about a party structure, and we think about this usually in terms of the old days, the good old days, as people would say, think Boss Tweed and, and some of the other folks from the good old days, uh, the party chair is supposed to have an awful lot of influence and be able to make those sorts of decisions. But so often there are no rules about how that is supposed to happen. So the justice was perfectly uh, in line with a logical course of questions to say, how do we decide? How do we know? Now, I know there are some chairs who will actually do an interview and sit down with somebody who wants to run. They will talk about things and find out if there's really been a conversion experience or not. Uh, and, and, you know, I think people would feel a bit more comfortable with that. But that's that's boy, that is scary because that's one person who may not want to go against an incumbent, for example. Uh, if you're thinking, let's set aside the Senate race, county commissioner race. You've got a county commissioner who's an incumbent and somebody comes in and says, I want to run against that incumbent. Is that enough uh, for a chair to say, no, we support our incumbents, you're out, but maybe the voters actually want to have a say in that. Who knows? There are all sorts of ways where this party function is flawed, and I still get amazed that every election there are not more people who will say, wait a minute, why are my tax dollars being used to pay for this party function, this party function that, by the way, I may not have much faith in because a county chair – who was elected by, you know, a handful of people is going to get to have say over who gets on the ballot. And their say may be greatly influenced by donors, incumbency, and other factors that really are not about the ideology of the party. Also, my friend, too, I thought it was interesting that the Supreme Court heard this case, uh, and like I said, right, literally smack dab in the middle of all the filing deadlines. Last Friday was the last day to file. I want to say uh, this coming Friday was the last day to withdraw. Then the, the, the 29th is the last, the last day to challenge. And I remember uh, reaching out to the Supreme Court like, hey, you guys realize uh, this is in the middle of all these filing deadlines. Their response was like, yeah, we know. <laughs> well, the courts the courts kind of operate on their own calendar. Uh, I, th- I think we all know that. If, if you didn't realize it happened at the state level, you probably recognize that it happens to a degree at the federal level. And now you know it happens at the state level, too. Uh, I, I can remember back to days of being much more involved in the administration of election, waiting for organizations like the Indiana Election Division or the courts to make a decision, knowing that, hey, we've got deadlines for printing ballots. We've got deadlines for sending out uh, applications. We've got deadlines for a whole lot of stuff. And you are going to really complicate things if you don't let us adhere to these. Oh, and by the way, if you don't, you have now created an opportunity for somebody to say there was a problem with the election and to sue. 
And by the way, my friend, speaking of those deadlines, someone needs to tell the Donald Trump people that, hey, you need to <laughs> read about read about the deadline search before you start <laughs> tweeting about somebody does have enough signatures. Well, not only read about the deadlines, but read about the way in which the signatures are verified. Uh, I was having this conversation with somebody, I think it was, it was last week, uh, who, who didn't understand the difference in the deadlines. Uh, but then when I explained, well, you know, you need to check the signatures, they said, oh, okay, I get that. And then I pointed out that, hey, if a petition has signatures from two different counties, it's got to be checked in two different counties. And they said, oh, okay, I get that now. And so it was easy to understand, but the process is kind of complicated if you don't know. In this day of statewide databases, why should a county have to check something and another county check that as well? That's the mindset of some people. I'm not saying that I agree or disagree. That's just the way some people are going to see it. It's a statewide voter file. Submit them all to Indianapolis. Let them check all of them and be done with it. And then there are other people who will say, well, why the heck do you got to go get 500 signatures anyway? That seems a little in each congressional district. That, that seems like a pretty difficult bar to clear and maybe going to limit the number of quality candidates we have running. Andy Downs with us for a few minutes on the program day. Andy, uh, can't can't close out our conversation uh, without looking at the state conventions that are coming up uh, in June. You have a Democratic convention, uh, for the most part, uh, relatively quiet, not a whole lot. We have a contested attorney general's race. Uh, Destiny Wells, who ran for secretary of state, uh, going up against Beth White, former uh, Marion County clerk. But on the Republican side, you have a, a contested lieutenant governor's race and, more importantly, a contested attorney general's race, which, by the way, you have uh, the, the incumbent Todd Rakita, who actually may not be able to practice law come next year. <laughs> uh, if you ask me which one of those is most interesting, I would actually say probably the LG on the Republican side, just because of the way certain individuals are campaigning. Uh, so that's why I would say that's most interesting from a structural uh, disrupting the process standpoint. If you said, well, who are the most interesting candidates or the places where the most interesting result might come, then you got to kind of look at that Republican AG race and ask yourself, is there something that's going to happen? I know an awful lot of people were happy and excited about the education portal that the AG created, but that was not exactly rolled out well. And I think some people are going to say, if you're going to do those things, you got to do them well. Uh, I don't necessarily trust you to do them well. You, you know, your license is in jeopardy. You've done things that have brought you before the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Committee. This, this could very much be about character and performance in ways that we maybe don't often see in those convention races. And it's also interesting, too, the same thing that Todd Rakita uh, said about Curtis Hill uh, four years ago when he beat him in that convention race. You just basically take out Curtis Hill and put in Todd Rakita, and it's the, it's the exact same thing, my friend. It really is. It, it's a, you're right. This is, this is now uh, – it's almost like a, a replay. Uh, part of me has to wonder what Curtis Hill is thinking about this and, and whether he's thinking, should I run? Should I run for attorney general again? Uh, it is. It will be a fascinating. It will be a fascinating few days. And by the way, uh, uh, favorite joke that I have to tell you is I convinced my lovely wife to run. Um, my, my wife, she hates politics, even though she's married to me of all people. She can't stand it as one thing to do with it. She votes for she votes for who she likes. She doesn't care about political parties. But I convinced her to run uh, in the Republican primary. Uh, as a convention delegate, so that way she gets all the AG stuff, all the lieutenant governor stuff. I put all of my cheat sheet. I make more money. She gets more steak dinners. <laughs> I'm 
she's got to appreciate that. She's got to appreciate that. Yeah, like I said, we ha- I had to convince her to do it, but I had to do it sort of the long way around. Like, honey, what is in this for me? Like, well, dear, here's how the, here's how you benefit. <laughs> Anything else, my friend, that uh, that we might have been missing or you want to touch on? Uh, I think we've covered an awful lot of territory there. I, I think uh, that's probably pretty good for right now. Oh, yeah. Um, by the way, the next time we have to chat, it'll be about uh, is the state of Indiana buying lawsuits uh, with some of the litigation that's passing these days, uh, whether it is uh, the, 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 the law that the Chinese can't buy farmland in Indiana next to a, next to a military base or whether it goes to, to health care, the whole thing about ERISA, which goes to the supremacy clause. Like, you guys are buying litigation here. What are you doing? Well, it, but we don't have to focus right now. We can talk about previous leg- legislation. There has been a willingness on the part of the legislature to uh, just flat out say, yeah, we know we're going to get sued. Let's do it anyway, which is in contrast to a period when they used to say, you know what, let's avoid the litigation. Let somebody else fight it out, and then we'll know what to do. We haven't spent the money on it. But when you get uh, legislators or attorneys general or other statewide elected officials who are trying to become more than just administrators of programs, you run you run into situations like this. And Our, this is true whether you're talking about Republicans or Democrats. Anybody who says this is, I'm just saying this about Republicans, no. You look around the, sta- around the states, uh, Democratic AGs, Republican AGs, for about 20 years now, they have become much more active in policy within their states uh, and forcing legislation to move in a direction or influencing legislation that could result in litigation. All right, like I said, we covered a lot of ground with our good friend Andy Down- Andy Downs, the Director Emeritus of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University. For Andy, my friend, always great to chat with him. My spider sense tells me we'll probably be talking again in a couple of months and some change. I, I would be disappointed if we didn't. Thanks for having me on. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.